Open with me to the back of your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Our text this morning, our, our beginning text will be the first, from the first chapter of the last book of the Bible. If you don't know where Revelation is, just flip all the way to the back and there it is. We'll read together verses 1 through 3. Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Well, Christians by Jesus are told that we can expect two things, persecution and paradise. In Matthew 24, 9, Jesus says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And paradise, John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Well, in Revelation, we have these two promises unpacked at length for people who are experiencing the first promise and looking for and longing for and waiting for the second. This morning, I hope that we will see God as more glorious than we have seen him before, that we will see Satan and sin and death as more ugly as we have ever seen them, that we will see Christ's coming and look forward to it with greater anticipation than we have ever looked forward to it. But we must admit at the front that Revelation is the weirdest book in the Bible. In it we have dragons, angels, beasts, locusts with human faces, and all of that is very weird. But apparently not too weird for God, and as we'll see, not that weird to the original readers. Now, most of what we have in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is easy to read on the surface. It's plain to us. It comes to us in human language, in human categories, letters, for example. But Revelation is a little tricky. And thankfully, John made a few things in, said a few things in plain Greek right up front in the first three verses of his letter. He says in these verses that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation. It's meant to be understood. We often think when we come to this book or think about this book that it's trying to hide things from us. We don't want to even look at it because it's a bunch of hidden things. We can't get. Well, it's meant to be understood. It's a revelation. That's good to know. He says that it's for his servants. Now, the first servants that would have received this book would have been seven churches. John mentions uh, seven churches that Uh, Jesus writes seven letters to in chapters two through three. We'll look at one. Now look at Jesus and how he ends each of those letters though. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So this extends to us as well. He writes for us as well. Just like Paul's letter to the Colossians is for us as well. So is the book of Revelation. And the threat of death from Rome for Christians who would not worship the emperor was real for the people in that day. They needed it. But the same monster behind Rome is at work in our day as well. Revelation is for all of God's people. 
Well, John also tells us why the revelation was given. It was given to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He doesn't want us to be in the dark. He says he's going to show us the things that must take place. And as we'll see in seeing what will take place, we are to see in everything the God and Christ who is behind ultimately all of them. He also tells us the kind of book it is. He says that Jesus Christ made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Well, made, made it known here is could be translated the word signified, revealed, and used in reference to dreams and visions. So it could be translated signified, but we can put it in that genre of apocalyptic literature, which is full of symbols and significations, if you will. And we know that because John was ascended to heaven to get this and it was mediated by angels. Well, those two things are perfectly typical of this genre called apocalyptic. And we'll learn about a little more about that in just a moment. We also see that it's meant to bless those who hear it, who keep it, and take it to heart. And this is what we want. We want to be happy in God and so we want to read the book of Revelation and understand it. To see Christ with God's help more clearly for our time together. When we come to the book of Revelation, these are extremes, but we usually have either a fanatic about this book, some of us are paralyzed about this book, and some of us are ambivalent about this book. Well, it's my goal this morning to focus the fanatic on the center of the thing, to relax the paralyzed, to see Christ in it all, and to excite the ambivalent. May we all see Christ more clearly this morning for reading the book of Revelation. You could say in summary, all of God's people are meant to hear, to get, to keep, and be blessed by John's apocalyptic vision of Jesus Christ. That's what we get from chapters 1, verses 1 through 3. But before we go any further, let's talk about this genre of apocalyptic literature. If we read Revelation like a normal letter of correspondence, we might think that John jumped the shark. You remember the show Happy Days. Well, right when the series was losing its appeal and ratings were falling, the episodes got increasingly weird as the writers were grasping for interest. Then there was this episode where the Fonz, water skiing behind a boat in short khaki shorts and a leather jacket, goes over a jump right over a live shark and lands. And the crowd on the beach went wild. And everyone at home turned off the TV. Happy days was over. Well, John has not, and God has not, run out of ideas. And so they came up with this, and then the cannon is closed. And John is not seeing things in his old age. You just have to know what kind of thing he's writing. Well, apocalyptic literature shows up in parts of the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, for example, it was popular especially in the 200 years leading up to and following the first century. It was all over the place, and original readers of this letter would have known exactly what they were dealing with. They would have known the rules. So what happened to it? Well, who knows? But no one's writing in this genre anymore. It's dead. The closest thing we have as a parallel would be sci-fi. I've heard Ryan say Revelation is like poetry meets sci-fi. It's beautiful. It's true. Maybe not sci-fi. It's totally unpredictable. Genre, I'm convinced, is the crucial key for understanding this book. Try to read Revelation like history is like trying to read a sports section like a romance novel. Or trying to watch a commercial 
like a movie, and you think, man, that was a terrible movie. I mean, it was all about yogurt and 45 seconds long. If you make the genre mistake, you'll miss the whole point. So it's, yes, it's dead, and yes, it's weird. The book of Revelation is weird to us. But God chose us to give us this book in this specific genre. And to get this book, we're simply going to have to talk about the kind of book that it is. If you want to read the Psalms, you have to get poetry. If you want to read Revelation, you have to get apocalyptic. And understanding the genre will help us to understand why God used it in the first place. In the same way that poetry is able to do things that prose is not, apocalyptic is able to do things that prose and poetry is not. So since apocalyptic is dead, since it's dead, and since it's unfamiliar to us, let me compare it to six things that aren't dead and aren't familiar to us. And in the spirit of the genre, you are welcome either to draw these things or to write them down or both. They'll appear on the side screens. The apocalyptic genre, apocalyptic literature, is sort of like a comic I hate most comics. I hate Family Circus the most. My wife cautioned me against saying that, but there it is. I love Dilbert. I remember growing up, my dad said, I swear the guy who writes Dilbert works in my office. I thought maybe he worked in his office. What did he mean? Was there a talking dog in his office? Or people without mouths? No. Good comics interpret the world right. The reason we get them is because they get us. Totally unreal, but totally true in so many ways. So it's like a comic strip, but it's also like a comic book. We find extravagant pictures, characters, events, and stories with development. Look at how John sees Christ in this vision. Chapter 1, verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Sound like a comic book character? What does it mean? He's majestic. He speaks a sure word. He sees and judges everything perfectly. He's the image and glory of God. There he is. Here's a description of how to read contemporary comics. I thought it was helpful. Writers often use particular forms and conventions to convey narration and speech or to evoke emotional responses. The use of text, ambiguity, symbolism, and art help to build a subtext of meanings. Comics can be hard to read sometimes. However, it depends on the reader's frame of mind to read and understand the comic. Well, we need to read Revelation as well in apocalyptic literature with the right frame of mind. So just because Revelation uses words, don't get it confused with the rest of the books in the Bible or anything else you read. It's a picture book drawn with words. And while there are symbols, I need to say that apocalyptic is not allegory, where there's no plainly discernible relationship between a symbol and the things symbolized, between numbers and what they mean, for example. There's real historical contextual clues for interpreting them. Already in verse 4, John's at it. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Okay, it's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Now, unless I'm missing something... Oh, wait, this is apocalyptic. Seven. 
the number of completion, seven days in the original creation story. Like 10 for us, 10 fingers, 10 toes. Seven spirits means the one and only spirit of God. We see a lot of horns in Revelation. Those are always a sign of rule and authority. So it's sort of like a comic. Well, it's also sort of like surround sound. You draw a sound system. The sub sounds different from the right speaker, different from the left speaker, which sounds different from the back speakers. Any one speaker might highlight a different frequency or bring out a different instrument. A little more lead guitar out of the right, a little more cowbell out of the back. It's all the same song. And in parts of Revelation, it's like a song on repeat, and the fade dial keeps moving from a different speaker with each play. In apocalyptic, you can get what are called circle stories, story circles. He'll tell a story, watching an event, and then replay it from a totally different angle, zooming way up close or looking way back or on a different part of the world. I mean, it's, it's a very busy, kind of messy thing. Uh, but these story circles are a part of what you get in apocalyptic literature. It'll sound quite different with each turn, maybe. But if you read it straight through, you get an overwhelming sense of the whole, like a great piece of music. Apocalyptic will pull that on you. As we read, we can't always assume a strict chronological telling of the events. It's just like sci-fi will mess with us, so can apocalyptic mess with us. It's like surround sound. Well, it's also like a satellite. It's like a satellite. And Psalm 23 is inspired but from the perspective of the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. The New Testament letters are from the perspective of the writers, but they're also inspired of God. Well, this is inspired, but it's unique. It's actually from his perspective. It gives the cosmic perspective on things, the God's eye view on things, the way things really are from the perspective of the one who sees across space and time. We can see the battles happening behind the battles, the characters behind the characters. This is about putting everything, and that means everything, into the truly proper perspective. So it's like a satellite. It's also like a war speech. It comes in a time of crisis. It's interesting that the book of Revelation is most popular among persecuted Christians. And it is least appreciated and even a source of an embarrassment for Western middle-class Christians. But watch any movie where people are under great pressure, especially war movies, and you will get a pump-you-up speech every single time. I recently watched a two-minute speech clip made up of 40 different movie clips speech-stitched together, including Braveheart, Star Wars, The Muppets. (laughs) 40 different clips. In two minutes. Well, apparently, we take it for granted that when people face a seemingly impossible task, they need someone to tell them how it really is, what's really important, and how things could be. And then people do extraordinary things. Scriptwriters just understand this. And so does God. And so we have the book of Revelation. What we need is inspiration. And he gives us divine inspiration, if you will, in this book. And as we'll see, God's people are capable of extraordinary things. You can't kill them, and they know it. So it's sort of like a war speech. And it's also sort of like an onion. There are many layers here. 
As you read, you know, you're reading text. That's one layer of communication. Inspired text that John made, Jesus made sure John would write. We read about a slain lamb on a throne, for example. But there's another layer of communication here, the visionary layer. What you're reading is about a vision that John saw. He saw a real vision of a lamb slain and on a throne. But then you have the referent layer of communication. What that's meant to say, what what that refers to, what that thing is. Well, the lamb slain on a throne, the slain lamb on a throne is Jesus Christ. He is not a physical lamb, but John is seeing a lamb and he is a lamb. And then there's the significance layer of communication. Well, what is that vision that he's seeing tell us about the thing it's referring to. That Christ is pictured as a lamb in the midst of the throne means that his victory and rule were established through his slaughter and substitutionary death on the cross. So it's sort of like an onion. And it's like a blender. That's what it does with content. It takes a whole bunch of ideas and shuffles them together to make something that is at the same time totally chaotic and perfectly smooth. Throughout the letter, you might find as many as four Old Testament images converging on a single verse without apology. So if you read this book and think, I am confused, your next thought should not be, I'm an idiot. Or this is an impossible book, but... God wrote a masterpiece. Keep reading. Don't wait to read Revelation until you feel like you've got categories for it. It'll give you its own categories. Just read it and keep reading. It's like a blunder. So what does it mean to interpret Revelation literally? If a man says he has a smoking hot bride, what does he mean when he says that? What does it mean to interpret that literally? Well, he does not mean what he said but he means exactly what he meant by what he said. John John literally saw these things in his vision. He literally saw everything that you read about in Revelation. And he and we want to believe what they literally meant. Now, this is tricky. And for that reason, our interpretation of this strange book should should not be a litmus test for our fidelity to God's word, so long as we are earnestly seeking to understand him correctly. And it's a reason as well to hold our understanding with humility, and I sure do this morning. There's a story of a seminarian, seminarian walking by a janitor reading his Bible. And he asks, what are you reading? Revelation. Well, do you understand it? Yes. Well, tell me what it means. Jesus is going to win. And there you have it. You know, some kids, junior hires, can probably read this and get it. It's an imagination, an understanding of that God has an imagination too in the way he communicates. For all the eccentric trees, the forest is big and beautiful and awesome, and the point is clear. The visions are wild, but the significance is plain. The bad guy loses hard. The good guy wins big. All of those who are with the bad guy lose with him, and all of those who are with the good guy win with him in the end. But there's a reason why God didn't just give us one page with the words, Jesus is going to win. And he sure could have done that. 
And so we see that this genre is specifically fitted to the kind of thing God is trying to say and do in saying that. And it will bless us if we read it and take it to heart. Now this is a book, uh, this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is from him, but it's also a book about him. He tells us where he is, what he's doing, and where everything is going. So the rest of the sermon will answer the question, so what did Jesus reveal about himself? And the overall structure of the sermon will reflect what we see at a 30,000 feet. We'll stay pretty high in our main points, if you will. They'll reflect as well the main divisions of the book. So in the outline here, you actually have the outline of the book. I hope that's helpful. Our altitude will be high, but we will dip down below the trees to look at some things up close. And I hope it's fascinating, interesting, and encouraging as it's meant to be. So what did Jesus reveal about himself? First, in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ reveals his words to the church. Chapters 2 through 3. Before the main vision stuff, he wants to get some things out of the way. And in chapters 2 through 3, Jesus writes a personal letter to each of seven churches. There were more churches in the region, but remember, seven's a number of completion. And in these seven letters, Jesus covers the gamut of the struggles and the strengths and the kinds of the churches have and the kinds of instruction that he would give to the church. We have all we need right here. This is what Jesus wants to say to the church down the ages. Let's read one together. Chapter 3, verses 14 and following. Jesus' letter to the church at Laodicea, and this letter is, by the way, perhaps best suited for the Western Evangelical Church. Let's read chapters 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, the first thing Jesus did was identify himself. He does this in all of the letters in a different way unique to each letter in church. And throughout Revelation, we have many symbols. And we have some symbols in this letter that are references from Old Testament, but some of them are from the immediate context of the church. He says that they are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Laodicea was situated between two cities, one with hot medicinal springs, those are good, and one with a cold mountain stream, which is refreshing and also good. But Laodicea was famous for its terrible and useless lukewarm water. It was piped in from a good distance. This does not mean God would rather have you for him or against him, but not lukewarm. It means God would have you useful like hot or cold water instead of useless like the water in your own pipes. 
This was a zinger. Self-reliance, in as much as it means responsibility, providing each for ourselves is a virtue. But when it's combined with a lack of love and dependence upon God, recognizing he gives us every breath and all of our strength to do all of the good work that we do. It's evil and it leads to death. There was an earthquake in the area here and uh, the Roman government offered to help. They refused to help. And Laodicea prided themselves and boasted that they recovered on their own. So what are they to do? Jesus tells them in verse 18, they were famous in the region for their wealth and riches. Jesus tells them to buy from him the riches of himself and the riches of a refined and pure heart. They were famous for their wool, especially their black wool. Jesus says they're naked. He tells them to buy from him white garments that their, that their hearts are as black as their own wool is. They were famous for their guild of physicians. Jesus tells them that they were blind and that he alone could make them to see. He reminds them why he's speaking this way as well because these are harsh words. Even though they're inviting, God disciplines those he loves. He loves them and calls them to repent. He knocks at the door of this church. These believers are making more of the food in their fridge than the food of Christ himself. He's knocking at the door of a church of Christians. They're not unbelievers, but believers. Let me come in. Are we useful to Christ? Do we listen to him? Is he our closest companion? Do we depend on him? Or if we're honest, would our lives be okay if we never heard his name? Or do we live like that? Do we work like that? In these seven letters, Jesus reveals his words to the church. And then he gets dramatic. The vision gets dramatic. Next, Christ reveals his reign from heaven. The meat of John's vision, by the way, is chapters 6 through 20 with the story of the times between the coming of Christ. But before that, in chapters 4 through 5, he shows us something that we must see first. Something John must see first and that all Christians must see before they see anything else. Let's look with him in chapter 4. Verse 1, let's go with him. He says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Well, look what we have here. Rome was persecuting Christians for not bowing down to its throne. Christ shows John a throne. Well, who's on it? Verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Well, whatever it is, his splendor is unmatched. We know that much. That's the point of the stones. And we've seen precious stones before in the Bible. They usually accompany God's presence. Eden, the temple, Jerusalem, the priest's garments. And there's a rainbow around it. This is not a Roman throne. Rome is dark. This one is of light. He's the opposite of darkness. Well, let's keep looking. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments. The golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire 
which are the seven spirits of God. Well, whoever he is, he has many mighty and majestic servants. Verse 6, and before the throne, there was, uh, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. John and we are in the throne room of God. The sea of glass is the opposite of the chaotic and dangerous sea. It's peaceful, under control. And did you notice? Beautiful, like crystal, reflecting the one who's on the throne. And the four living creatures, they have eyes everywhere. The one they serve must see everything inside and out. They remind us of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1. And they're the weirdest things, by the way. Every creature in that vision that Ezekiel saw, had the face of all the animals John is seeing, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Well, are they the same or are they different? Remember, it's like a comic. It's not a picture of reality, but an impression of reality. An apocalyptic is like a blender. It's a slightly different smoothie from the same great stuff. Looking at this scene, God is stronger, more majestic, and more beautiful than any of the things around him. He is holy, 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 and they cry out, all of them, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we're in his throne room. But wait, he has a scroll in his hands, in his right hand, and it must be pretty important. I mean, John is in the very presence of God, and he's weeping. He's weeping because apparently no one is worthy to open the seals. And then one of the elders says to John in verse 5, Weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus Christ is here too. John continues, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Before we see anything, we must see God and we must see Christ. And that frame, you are worthy, by the way, sounds a lot like what they were asked to say to the Roman emperor. The images baked into chapter four and five, all of these images are focusing on God the creator and his worth and Christ who is slain for us in his worth, the one who redeems people from every nation. But what's going on down here? God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. But what's going on down here? God's people are persecuted. 
slain even. Well, Jesus Christ reveals his words to the church, his reign from heaven next, and then his sovereignty through his plan. This extends from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 20. We get a series of seven circle stories pulling back the curtain on the times between the first and the second coming of Christ. It's like a seven speaker sound system. We can hear things we just would not hear if it was just one linear story. But even still, they're not neat circles. Remember the blunder imagery. The characters are the same. Satan and his pawns, the triune God, the people of God. But each cycle might emphasize, add, or exclude certain parts of the story. Remember that as you read Revelation. And they circle on in the persecution and the judgments and God's victory in Christ to get bigger and more dramatic and more amazing. It's like listening to a one amazing song in surround sound that has a climax that takes you above the clouds, out of yourself. Well, let's not read the whole thing. Let's just read part of chapter 12, and we'll get a taste for what's inside. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And I will warn you that I will be abbreviating this as I read. So if you notice I'm skipping something, it's okay, just follow, if you can. Through the single speaker of this section, we can hear most of what's going on in the whole masterpiece of 6 through 20. And we'll also see that at its heart, the message of this book is the message of the rest of the Bible, if you're following along you'll notice that. Chapter 12, we read this. A vision. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. The dragon was defeated. Verse 9, And the dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 10, and verse 10 and verse 12, by the way, most of our our points will fall from throughout this next section. And we read, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Well, first we see that Christ is revealing his sovereignty and his plan over Satan's rage. Over Satan's rage. When you take something from a kid, it's their nature to throw a fit. And the fit will be in proportion to the certainty of the verdict. I mean, you'd think if it was certain they weren't getting it back, they'd just eat it. No, wrath. Untrained hearts will respond that way when things are taken. 
especially certainly. Well, Satan's defeat was decided definitively at the cross, but right now he is as mad as hell, and he is taking it out on the people of God, the people God loves. He's throwing one huge, we could say, cosmic fit. He's been thrown down, and he has come down, verse 10 and 12 say, in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Well, let's review the backstory that we were given. The pregnant woman is the people of God. Notice the crown of 12 stars, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. It's the number of the completion of God's people. And in the Old Testament, Israel was described as a mother giving birth to the Messiah. And here she's giving birth to a male child. And the dragon is right there with his mouth open, ready to devour the child. This one is the one who is to rule all the nations. Remember Herod's plot to kill the Messiah? Psalm 2 asks the question, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. The answer? A raging dragon. Why persecution? Why are Christians killed in the name of Christ? a raging dragon. He's mad because his meal flew away. The only thing that can satisfy his hunger is the defamation of God. But Jesus ascended to heaven. The story here in chapter 12 just skips his whole life. That's what it does. And what did the woman do? Where did she go? It says she fled into the wilderness. God's people had seen wilderness before after deliverance from Egypt. The dragon was behind that nation, by the way. And God cared for his people and fed his people there. And now God is caring for his people after a new exodus and a new wilderness. And that's us. And that's where we are. Between Christ's first and second coming, his glorious return. It says she'll be there 1260 days. That comes from Daniel in a prophecy of time of great persecution. And they felt the fulfillment of that in part. In the middle of the second century BC, a time of tremendous persecution for Israel, a major point on their calendar. You say 1260 days, it means three and a half years. 42 months also shows up in this book over and over. It's like 9-11. If I say we're going to have another 9-11, you don't say, well, of course we're going to have another service next Sunday. 9-11 is next Sunday. You don't think of a date. You think of the event and the nature of it. Another 9-11 means we're going to be attacked again. And you get it. And this persecution that she's to suffer, she's in the wilderness, will come in varying degrees at varying times in varying places. But she's being nurtured by God. Jesus did talk about wars and earthquakes and famines. And in another story cycle in this book, we read about these. They're happening all the time in this age. And they're warning shots of the great undoing that is to come one day. But Satan's, as Satan's rage unfolds, at every turn, Christ is sovereign over it. As we read on in this little story, how did the woman get into the wilderness? Well, we, we find out. God gave her two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent. The serpent poured out water from his mouth to sweep her away while God made the earth swallow up the river. 
And then in verse 17 of chapter 12, we read that then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war against her offspring. And that's us. And that's us in this room and our brothers and sisters around the world. Satan is at war with God's people. In our temptations, he is warring against us. In our arguments with our spouses, he is warring against us. In the false gospels, the false hopes we're tempted to believe and trust, Satan is warring against us. The lucrative but compromising opportunity and opportunities at work, he's warring against us, chipping away at our allegiance. And in our struggles to read our Bible, he's warring against us. But God is sovereign over all of Satan's fiery darts. And they are fiery and they are big. Satan is relentless. He even calls out a team uh, to serve him, a counterfeit trinity of sorts. As we read on, there's a beast that rises out of the sea to counterfeit Christ. He represents persecuting power, especially the persecuting power of the state. He has a wound to copy Christ's mortal wound as the one who resurrected. There's another beast who rises out of the earth who's called the false prophet, a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit, his propagandist. Its number is 666. Each of those numbers, one short of seven. Together they deceive the nations and demand worship from God's people on pain of death. We should not be surprised at such pressures in this world, big and small, because we know what's behind the curtain. A dragon. For the original readers, they would have seen Rome in all of these. But for all of us, they represent opposition to the name of Christ in these forms wherever they appear, and especially in the state. For the state is as dangerous as it is important to human flourishing when the dragon has his way. And in the West, as the West moves farther from her Judeo-Christian roots, the screws will tighten on Christians economically, politically, Christian ideas about the way the world is and what human beings are will always threaten the explicit or non-explicit self-proclaimed deity of the state. It's a slow but real turn. And the demand for worship isn't always so pronounced. Sometimes it's the demand to bow uh, to the God of sensuality and immorality that we find in the wider culture at large. And that is... uh, what Babylon in this book is a reference to, serving the purposes of the beast and the dragon. Well, Christ is sovereign over the rage of Satan. It's part of God's plan. But did you catch the end of verse 12? The devil has come down in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He's been thrown down. Christ's sovereignty is also revealed through judgment. Through judgment. Satan, that ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world, has been thrown down. And that happened when the cross happened. He can't touch Christ. And as we sing, lo, his doom is sure. Just when he thought he killed God's Christ, God takes death out of his hands and throws it back at him. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us that it was through death that God destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil, past tense, destroyed. He's been thrown down, judged, but his time is short. There's a final judgment coming. At the time of Christ's return, things will have gotten really bad. Persecution, really bad. And there's a great war between the dragon and the lamb and their people. 
And in Revelation 20, we see how that ends. Praise the Lord. In verse 10 of chapter 20, the devil who had deceived them was thrown down into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. This judgment is final. It is eternal. It is torment. It is for the devil. But it is not just for the devil. Read with me verse 11 and following. On the screen. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And they were dead, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown down into the lake of fire. God makes things right in the end. He deals final justice to the source of everything bad and cruel. Rape, murder, hate, child molestation, deceit, adultery, pride. But he also deals final justice to all those who with the breath that God gave them, believed the serpent's lies and joined him in his rage. And that was many of us in this room. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says that we followed the prince of the power of the air. We lived according to the passions of our flesh. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But because God is rich in mercy, we learn in Colossians 1, 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If our name is in that book of life, it is God's gracious doing. And if you are not in Christ this morning, you are under wrath. You can deny this until you die, but you will not deny it when that day comes. And that's what God is saying, and I'm saying to you on the authority of his word. But I'm also saying that there is good news, and it's the story of the whole Bible while we're meeting this morning, and it's why we have a book in the first place. Christ is revealing his sovereignty through judgment, but also in salvation. 12 verse 10. Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. To those who believe on Christ, they are rescued from all that they deserve. And God is committed to this salvation. Do you remember the song that was being sung to Christ? In the throne room, you were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Listen to people sing after all the evil is done away with, and they are, because of God's mercy, not only standing with him, but eating with him. In Revelation 19, verses 6 and following, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And these words, and yes, what is the weirdest of weird books in the Bible, are the true words of God. Doesn't it sound like the rest of our Bible? Doesn't it sound like the rest of the New Testament? Its message is the same. Its genre is different. Christ is sovereign in salvation. But how on earth is that possible? How can God do that? 
How is it possible for him to win over evil and for any of us in this room to win with him? Did you notice the lamb theme? He's sovereign in salvation by the blood of the lamb. In verse 11, it says, They have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. In this book, the lamb judges. But in our four gospels, as you'll recall, the lamb is judged. He's on a cross being killed by us and for us. He is under God's wrath. Jesus Christ there, a lamb dying for his people. And we who believe are his people. It makes no human sense. Paul is right. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Satan is conquered by Jesus' death for us. But did you notice the rest of verse 11? They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Would you like to know the reason why God allows Satan to rage against his people? Part of the devil's judgment is in his repeated killing of Christians who look death and at him in the face and smile because it has no sting. And his judgment is in those from the nations who look on and glorify God because of their witness. The devil can not win. He kills us and loses. After Jesus said that his disciples would be killed, in the verse we opened up with, in chapter 24, verse 14 of Matthew, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. Our witness is a witness unto death. God's plan includes the slaying of the lamb and the slaying of his witnesses, all for his glory, the redemption of the nations, and the judgment of Satan. As the nations look on at a people who take death, like Christians can take it, because they love not their lives, it witnesses to the life we know is waiting for us on the other side. And Satan is judged in his being thrown down. And he is judged when we die willingly. And he is judged when the nations look on at those deaths and turn to God and glorify him. There's blood on God's scroll. It's a part of his plan. It's for us so that we and many from every nation may boast only in him for all eternity. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world word shall fell him. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And now a picture. See the little greater sign on your notes? You can draw a lamb on the left, and you can draw a dragon on the right. That's the book of Revelation. And something like the genre of the book of Revelation. So in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ reveals his words to the church, his reign from heaven, and his sovereignty in his plan. And he reveals his new creation. 
And this, my friends, is truly what we have been waiting for. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In Revelation 21, 1 through 5, and several from chapter 22, which I'll read in a moment, Everything bad is gone forever, and everything good is here forever. And he applies the blender to like every image in the whole Bible that's to point us to the glorious presence of God. Listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Night will be no more here because the Lord will be our light. We need no lamp or sun. The new creation smoothie is just perfect. It's everything good we know in this life, infinitely magnified and known forever. It's a perfect place. It's physical. God is there. No more sadness, darkness. We're a perfect people. No guilt. No seared consciences, pure. And we'll know God's perfect presence. No temple, because the Lord God is our temple. We're with him all the time. So many of our troubles in this life, if we're honest, are because we're grasping for and even expecting these realities now. In our spouses, in our jobs, in our church, in ourselves, our dissatisfaction comes down to wanting what is impossible to have in this life. Look forward to the new creation. Don't try to find it here now. This is our hope. It's imperishable and unfading. Well, what a blessing to hear all of this and to take it to heart. Do you agree? What a blessing to hear that God is on his throne, he's in control. That ultimate justice will be served in the universe. That salvation is available through a slain lamb. That men and women from every nation will worship Christ. That our longings for a better home will be fulfilled beyond our imagination. And just to get one more Lord of the Rings quote in here before the series is over. In the words of Samwise Gamgee, everything sad will come untrue. And what a blessing to hear For those of us trusting in him, the very last words of Jesus in our Bibles. Behold, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Surely, I am coming soon. And let's uh, mirror John in this and saying, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look forward to the day 
And we will hear the words, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And we thank you that by your spirit, he is reigning in our hearts now. We pray that we would see you where you are on your throne. That we would see Christ as he is in the midst of your throne, a slain lamb who is worthy. We would see him as sovereign over everything, even in death. And that we would, because we love life, true life, him so much be willing to die for his sake and for the sake of the nations who would look on as a part of your plan and believe. Prepare us for the hardest times here by your spirit so that we may know infinite joy later. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.